0: I first met Dr. Seth Letterman in the fall of 2020 when I, along with everyone else on the globe covering biotech, was being inundated with pitches to speak with the hundreds of clinical stage biopharma leaders seeking to solve the then new COVID crisis. I've talked with a lot of them since, but the approach at Tonics Pharmaceuticals, where Dr. Letterman serves as co-founder, CEO, and chairman, is unique in a number of ways that we're going to discuss on today's episode of The Business of Biotech. For his part, Dr. Letterman followed up his Princeton undergrad in chemistry with a Columbia MD and stayed there for a long, long while as a teaching academic, directing research in molecular immunology, infectious diseases, and the development of therapeutics for autoimmune diseases. It's on that foundation that he became a biotech entrepreneur, and I'm honored to reconnect with Dr. Letterman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for
1: having me back on.
0: It's my pleasure. So, uh, as I noted, I want to start out get kind of getting to know you a little bit before we get into the work that Tonics is doing. Uh, but as, as I noted, you spent more than three decades uh, at Columbia University. Um, you're, you're deeply rooted in academia. That's, that's clear. But uh, during that time at Columbia, you got a taste for the business side of, of biotech. Uh, you, you discovered the CD40 ligand, made an antibody for it, uh, and partnered with Biogen to develop it. And from what I gather, you you tell me where I'm wrong on this, but from what I gather, that was sort of your first brush with uh, with the industry side. And from there, uh, you've migrated to the point where you're a full time biotech entrepreneur. So I think I framed it up somewhat, uh, you know, accurately there. But why don't why don't you kind of walk us through that experience and and how it kind of transpired from your uh, professorship at, at, at Columbia to where you are today.
1: Sure. Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Um when I was a professor, my first major pharmaceutical collaboration was with Biogen over the development of a humanized monoclonal antibody for C, against CD40 ligand. And this is an era when monoclonal antibodies were brand new, and as a matter of fact, I was working through a period after Centicor, which was later bought by J&J, had had a failed product in septic shock. And actually, there was very little interest in therapeutic monoclonal antibodies for mm. a lot of the time I was working in that area. But maybe I should take a step back and say, I went to Princeton, as you mentioned, and Princeton is, you know, a, at that time was a pharmaceutical university, I wouldn't say a trade school, but certainly we were right in the middle of the uh, pharmaceutical, you know, the world's pharmaceutical industry at that time was centered in New Jersey and Princeton was in the mix. So I was from an early age, I also grew up in Manhattan where many, you know, uh, BMS and Pfizer uh, were headquartered at that time. So uh, I very much grew up in a world of pharmaceuticals and and R and D. And I was, as you mentioned, a chemistry major and then went to medical school, Columbia. So I've seen two things. I've seen um, the peak of the New Jersey and Manhattan pharmaceutical industry. And I've also watched the emigration of a lot of these companies to Cambridge and to other places. So that's given me an interesting perspective, Mm -hmm. but um, I was very much an academic when I was at Columbia and uh, I think that academics and, and, and the pharmaceutical industry occupy, occupy very important, but different roles in what's really an ecosystem of this, this community that brings forth new therapies. So I've been pleased to be part of that community my whole career, and it's been exhilarating to be on the biotech side of it now.
0: Yeah. So, tell me, expand a little bit on that. Uh, you, you know, sort of the collaborative um, spirit between uh, that, that that you saw, and in some ways, many ways, fostered in your own career between academia and industry. Like well, you, you mentioned, that they occupy, you know, a, a similar space, and it's it's you know, it's interesting. I, I've spent time talking with uh, with biotech execs who who sort of. Uh, disparage the gap between academia industry and others who just laud the uh, the collaborative nature and the value of these relationships. So I think the perspectives are varying out there. I'm just wondering what yours looks like.
1: Well, I've seen a very interesting development over my career where when I was you know young in college medical school and as a, a professor at Columbia, Mm-hmm. The uh, there really were there were two poles. There was academia and big pharma, and big pharma at that time was really a remarkable, remarkable institution. And I think if the world was perfectly run, we probably would continue to have big pharma operating as it did back in those days because. Uh, Big Pharma had phenomenal resources, and they had just unbelievable basic science going on, you know, within their walls. And the typical Big Pharma, I did a mini sabbatical at Merck in 1990. And so a lot of my views on that are are, uh, of Big Pharma can be expressed by Merck in those days. And you had, you know, a large complex with a, wall around it. But inside the wall, you had chemists interacting with crystallographers, interacting with um, biologists, interacting with, you know, it was just, it was just amazing what was going on there. And academia wasn't nearly as sophisticated. But two things happened, I think. One is that the investors got greedy and I don't know why the pharmaceutical executives went along with it, but basically big pharma became a very stripped down version of that. And all the basic science was stripped down, cut out. And for whatever reason, there was this idea that big pharma had to be more um, you know, financially lean. And that became the new contest is how to shed core things like R and D, how to shed manufacturing, how to ship things, you know, overseas, all this kind of thing. So, uh, you know, what you see of big pharma today is just the—I don't know if you'd say the shadow of its former self, but a very skinny-down version that's, you know, a profit-making machine, as opposed to the uh, when when I was doing my mini uh, sabbatical at Merck, the the joke or, that was well regarded by people at the company was. It was internally called Merck U, so it was like mm-hmm. Merck University.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think what happened, um, you know, with that, you know, transformation of Big Pharma into this, you know, profit-making, um, you know, uh, machine is that biotech really played a bigger and bigger role.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you know Merck used to develop drugs, they, they would they would do their their own clinical operations team. And they would, instead of starting with one phase three study, they'd start with two or three phase three studies simultaneously. Um, And, and all sorts of things. There's just so much, so many resources around to do, you know, a better job. And there's a lot of emphasis on a very orderly progression uh, through, you know, dose finding, uh, you know, dynamics all this kind of thing so what's happened now is you have big Pharma for the most part being a um, you know sales and marketing organization and kind of a uh, merchant bank or something for these more advanced projects but mm-hmm. now you have this burgeoning biotech industry that is so exciting but biotech you know all of the risk has been concentrated in biotech I guess yep. that was one of the differences in the old days the scientists, took on less risk. And I think that what's happened now is that the risk has been pushed all on biotech, and to a large extent, been pushed down onto the scientists. So so the uh, it's it's new, exciting. I mean, I think critics of the old big pharma would say that they weren't good at, in, at innovation. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. But you know biotech certainly is a dynamic culture where there's a lot going on and a high premium on innovation and you know dynamic organization and dynamic research interests,
0: yeah, yeah. what when was it that you um sort of decided to concertedly make the transition to uh, to biotech? I mean, there, there's there, obviously there's overlap there. I mean, you 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 maintained uh, associate professorship for 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 some time, I'm sure. But um, give give us a sense for when you sort of made the kind of made the the hard left turn into into biotech.
1: Yeah, or the hard right turn. Right turn, right that's that's, the direction It was. That's but nice. um, you know, I I was a tenured professor, at Columbia University, so I had a lot of um, freedom. You know, at least for a day a week. Um, and also, part of my official duties was working with Biogen on the CD40 ligand project. So, I got a real education. One of the fun things about in collaborating with Biogen at the time, it was the premier biotech company. And it was also one of the early residents of Cambridge and Kendall Square. So, going mm-hmm. to visit them and having meetings was, was fun, but it was also, Biogen was a very prominent presence in Kendall Square. Now, when I go to Kendall Square, it's hard to find Biogen because there's so many buildings that have gone up between, you know, the, um, you know, the red line stop and everything from, you know, where it used to be in the hotel we'd stay at anyway. So, um, when did I decide? I think that what I realized in the Biogen thing was, I was a, a you know leader in molecular immunology and I discovered the CD40 ligand as you mentioned.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But when I was working with Biogen, I realized that one of the key functionalities that even Biogen could improve on was clinical development mm. and. I am a physician. I was a professor, um, associate professor of medicine, and and I worked for many years in the division of rheumatology and practice rheumatology, taught rheumatology. Um, I realized that that combination was very valuable in industry. And at that time, also, the university was going away from a model where people were what was called triple threats. I was trained to be a triple threat. A triple threat meant research, clinical, and education. And you know I was very involved in all three of those areas.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: increasingly, uh, universities were uh, pigeonholing people into just basic science, just clinical, or just education as those became somewhat more specialized. So I found that the environment at Biogen, where there was a lot of interaction between uh, clinical development and R and D was very stimulating. And I felt that my expertise in clinical medicine, as well as my basic science training and accomplishments were, were better suited to biotech. And also I felt it, I filled a bigger need. There were a lot of smart people doing molecular immunology, molecular virology, genomics, the things I was involved with there. So while I was fortunate to have been a leader in some of those areas, at least from time to time, I felt that in uh, biotech, I was m- more needed and potentially more valuable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The potential to to help more people and have a broader, broader impact. And, and that you have. I mean, I uh, already... Uh, and you're working working aggressively toward it because it kind of kind of kind of gets to uh, one of the topics I want to talk about and that's the breadth of your pipeline, breadth and depth of your pipeline at, at tonics. and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, it, but if I get to that too quickly, we won't uh, sort of get the genesis story uh, of tonics. So you co-founded the company in 2014. Um, what was your uh, I guess motivation for, launching your own. Like you, you know, you you as, as you said, you made up your mind to, to move into the into into industry. Um you could have done that in a a lot of different capacities, right? With your credentials and your your experience, you could have moved into pretty probably pretty much any any company you, you wanted to. You could have moved into early biotech as a chief science officer, I'm sure, uh, any number of roles. Um why why co-found your own?
1: Well thanks. That's an interesting question. And I'm sure like many other people, my life has been a series of stochastic events, opportunities, different things that happen. I'm not sure I can uh, draw a straight line, but I will say my career in biotech has been exclusively working on companies that I've founded and ideas that are important to me. And to jump ahead to the broad pipeline we have which now includes a number of things that we've brought in through m mm-hmm. a partnering collaborations so some yeah, like
0: 20 no some candidates yeah
1: yeah we have a lot of ballpark. something like that but yeah. but um the one theme that has stayed the same is our criteria for bringing something into tonics is that we have to basically be in love with it it mm-hmm. just has to be something that I or the people on the team working on it are passionate about, because if you're not passionate about an idea in biotech, it's just too hard. Not no one can succeed in biotech unless it, there's at least one person who is passionate about a drug. So that is the common theme of everything. And in the beginning, when I, you know, moved out and you know. Founded first one, then another, then a company. It was because these were ideas that I really felt needed to be done, and I felt that in order for them to get done, I had to play a role.
0: Yeah. Um. You know, so so that's an interesting. It's an interesting point, uh, and and I've often wondered this. I want to ask you a question about the the passion and the love, the commitment to. To a candidate or an idea in this business. Um, and I've I've asked other people this question, but I'm I'm it's it's one of those uh one of those questions you get variable answers to. You you've also got to know when to uh fell, fell fast, fell cheap, whatever you want to call it, cut bait and run. You know, pick pick your uh, pick pick your poor analogy or metaphor. Um what what do you do like when you when you have a situation where perhaps You've acquired something at a too early a stage that doesn't pan out the way you wanted it to, or you're working on development yourself and you've got a, a team or a person, uh, you know, deeply rooted in that project and, and cheerleading for it. Um, and from a business perspective, it's just not going to work out. You just need to let that go. Like, is that a, is that a tough spot for a CEO to be in?
1: It's, I don't know if it's a tough spot. It is the role of the CEO mm. and to, make those decisions and make those decisions with a team. And it's true that sometimes when you are making these decisions, it requires some convincing. Uh, So it's very difficult. People do uh, get overly involved with things. And then when when we make decisions, uh, we have to make them and, and move on. But, you know, clearly it's easy if there becomes a signal of patient risk or, you know, some, something that, uh, you know, involves, uh, safety, those are easy decisions, but, you know, there are, um, hard decisions, particularly after, you know, in later stage development, if a trial misses and, you know, you can look and see better, you know, ways to have done it. You know, there is a question about when are you still learning and, you know, when are you just spinning your wheels? So, You know, these are hard decisions to make, but I will say that, um, you know, many successful drugs have, I think almost all successful drugs have had uh, stories where at times during their development, not everything looked positive. Prozac is one of the biggest successes of all pharmaceutical history, and I believe there were more than five studies that were done to get two positive studies. So I think that sometimes, you know, you have to understand the disease you're targeting, condition you're targeting, the complexities of studying it, and to uh, continue learning through the trial process.
0: Yeah. You, uh, you know, when, when you were talking about the good old days of, of big pharma, you talked about, you know, running three you, you you your your eyes lit up with a little bit of envy when you talk about running three concurrent trials. Like you know you you wish that you had the resources, you were resource enough to do that. Uh, any any uh, emerging clinical stage biotech company uh, CEO would. Um, you, you're pretty uh, pretty aggressive though. Like from uh like a, like I said from a, a breadth and depth of, of of the pipeline. Not only do you have twenty some candidates, but they're uh, mul- you know across across modalities, across disease areas, um, spanning CNS, immunology, infectious disease, and, re- and rare disease even. Um, so so that all that leads to the question. Uh, I want to have a conversation around how you, you know, you mentioned acquisition. Um, I'm sure some of the, there's been some internal development. How have you managed to develop uh, that Deep pipeline so quick, so quickly. I mean, it's relatively quickly. I've, I've talked to plenty of companies that were founded well before 2014 that either haven't been able to or haven't chosen to get that aggressive with the development of their pipeline. So let's just talk through that. How'd you get that set up? Sure. And, and, and I, and I, Doctor Letterman. I don't. You know, I'm. I'm not asking you to take me. You know, on a on a room by room tour uh, of each candidate. I just want to get a sense for what the strategy's been.
1: Sure, I think it's a great question. I think it's, you know, being a CEO of a public company, it's, you know, talk about an ecosystem. You know, we are involved with our investors and we're listening to our investors and trying to do things that make sense for our investors. So I think that public companies generally have a lifespan and a, a, a cycle of life. In the early days, when they are dominated by VCs, they tend to be rifle shots, meaning one program, one platform, one idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is well, that's that's a theme of most VC backed companies. And I've worked very productively with VCs in the early stages of my biotech career. Uh, and I, I think VCs are now an extremely important part of the ecosystem. But from the VC perspective, they like to focus each bet. On one idea, either a drug or a platform. And they diversify their investment portfolio by doing multiple investments. So, a VC fund might have 10 programs and they're hoping to hit on two or three, hoping yeah. to break even on four, and then to, you know, they expect to lose money, whatever. But their diversity is across the portfolio. So, that's a private company model a public company model at least for our investors is one where the investors appreciate a diversification of the risk across more than one project so it's a very different model for you know us as you know as you say a public company has been public for a while we Mm -hmm. provide investors diversity across the um you know across a portfolio but if you think about it, you know, we're not talking about, we're not doing an, an apples to apples comparison because VCs answer to their limited partners and the limited partners who are the real money behind these Vsons funds want diversity. So the, the limited partners want diversity. The VCs give it to them by making multiple bets in each fund. We answer directly to our investors. Who are directly investors in tonics. So we don't have a middleman between us and our investors mm-hmm. to use. I mean, I, I have great friends who are VCs and they yeah. work very hard at what they do and they have tremendous expertise. But I'm just saying in this context that there's no intermediary between us and our investors. So our portfolio gives our investors diversification of risk over these different opportunities.
0: Yeah sound uh sound strategy that's well understood um give give us some insight into how you how you manage it though because effectively you know if you if you look at each one of those uh vc-backed startups uh who has a single perhaps molecular entity in the rifle shot approach uh you're effectively ceo of of 20 of those companies with it with the pipeline that you have now um you know, obviously that's a, a bit that's a bit of hyperbole, but uh, you you get the point. Like you've got a management, um, and a and a staffing and an IP management challenge uh, when you've got everything from you know rare disease candidates in the ATMP space to you know vaccines to small molecules. So how, how what's how do you go about that? Do you do, do a lot of outsourcing? Do you uh, just do you, you have an incredibly diverse <laughs> staff? What does that look like? Great question.
1: So we again, talking about the ecosystem model, um, we are specialized for the most part in the transition of drugs uh, from preclinical through early clinical to phase two. So that that is our bread and butter. And we have a team that has functionalities that are specific to that process for example we have a great group that does manufacturing development you know this is something that universities don't think about don't do when we get things from universities we have to pick it up make you know the compounds at gmp formulate them do pk all this kind of stuff so um i so we, we we have a multifunctional team that focuses on those areas and we, we specialize in those activities and we're very good at it. And that's why there's a commonality between a lot of these different programs and what our expertise is. The programs come in on one end and we do those activities that we're good at, file INDs, get approval to do you know, human studies and take them along the way. So I think that it's probably best to think of us as this part of an ecosystem where we're we're going into the clinic and advancing things, um, you know, into phase two. I think mm-hmm. phase two is the key play place that we play, and you know, one of the other things that I should mention about our role with VCs is, you know, they are also very limited in the time frame with which they can pursue investments because of the, you know, a typical VC fund has a finite life period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have to invest the capital and get returns over a certain period of time. So sometimes when programs take longer than they had expected, they really fall out of the opportunity. Many VCs can't reinvest in the same project, or they can't, if it's in fund four, they can't invest in that from fund five. So there are a lot of kind of opportunities that have come up for us where a lot of time and money has gone into a project. It's very interesting, but it no longer fits into this you know very specific kind of role um, that VCs play. So... We, because we are, you know, some people call a public company evergreen, right? Mm-hmm. That we're, you know, that we're, you know, we have, you know, we have capital and activities that are not limited by the, uh, con, you know, the confines or the, um, you know, the the agreements of a, of a closed NVC fund that's time limited, yeah. that you know, we can take things that, you know, have promise, have gotten a little bit beat up, but need some help and need to get further along. So again, part of the ecosystem. So um, we, you know, that's why I think it may look um, more complex than it is, is, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we're bringing in something, as I said, the, the relevant people in our team have to love it. And that also means that they have to have the bandwidth to do it yeah now you asked about um, outsourcing. Yes, we do a lot of outsourcing um, until until relatively recently, even going back to twenty uh, 2018, you might have even called us a virtual company. Mm. But you know over time, we've expanded our clinical ops team first. And now over time, particularly in the area of infectious disease, we have significant internal capabilities, including bricks and mortar, um, you know, and, and train people and other things that um, they're doing. So we, we've we evolved over time. But I think that we're also, um, as I said in the beginning, about how much of it is pursuing a, a, a vision like this and how much of it is just reacting to times. I think that what you're seeing now particularly with the pandemic is that the global supply chains are a mess. Yeah. And what had become, you know, the outsource research model depended a lot on other countries. Um as you probably know, APIs are made in India by and large. A lot of contract research you know is going on in China and you know before the pandemic it was great to operate in that kind of a virtual model, but travel has become harder. Importation has been harder. Just sending things across borders is harder. And there's a growing recognition that the United States needs internal resources, particularly for areas like biodefense, infectious disease, areas where we're very active. So to some extent, we're reacting to the times by increasing our internal capabilities, our bricks and mortar, and these other uh, capabilities. So it's, it's um, w- to be in biotech, you have to be dynamic, you have to be versatile, you have to adapt to the time. And yep. I think that we're doing a good job of, of staying with the times and also staying ahead.
0: When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at citiva.com backslash biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. Perfect. Is that uh, brick and mortar space that you've invested in uh, like like lab space or are you, are you actually uh, building or considering building manufacturing capacity of your own?
1: Both. Uh, okay. Last year on October 1st, we closed on the acquisition of a 48,000 square foot R&D facility in Frederick, Maryland. Hmm. it is uh it was built as b s l three but it had been operating at b s l two We have taken the steps to upgrade it back to b s l three but we're waiting for an inspection some other you know certification to get back at b s l three so uh this is frederick maryland if you're familiar with that area is at the north end of the two seventy corridor so you know, Frederick is at the top, and then it goes progressively down Gaithersburg, Rockville, Bethesda, et cetera. Uh, so we're at the top of that. We're just a few miles away from Fort Detrick, which is the home of USAM Ridd, the leading invest, you know infectious disease institute of the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. and also a major NIAID facility, at Fort Detrick, so there's a lot of cross-fertilization and both in terms of personnel, we've hired some great people from that campus, but we also have burgeoning collaborations uh, with, with them. So we have really phenomenal uh, capabilities in this uh, facility that's fully operational running now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, uh, in just south of Boston, <clears throat> in New Bedford, we are about to open a manufacturing facility. It's a manufacturing process facility that can do launch scale manufacturing, but is really focused on phase two and phase three biologicals, and particularly biologicals relating to our vaccine program. Mm -hmm. So again, those are capabilities that if we thought that we could contract out for those activities, we probably would have continued to contract out. But when we realized that we couldn't be second in line, we had to control our destiny, we needed some specific, um, you know, tooling machines, bioreactors, um, uh, systems that it made sense for us. And together with our investors, we, you know, have been able to, build this really phenomenal capability that we expect will be, um, you know, open by the summer. Well,
0: that's excellent. Congratulations. And it makes sense, uh, you know, in my mind anyway, it makes sense to do that if you can afford to, because uh, given the capital crunch uh, these days, given the, you know, I guess more um, discerning attitude of, of the biotech capital markets and, and venture capitalists um, around what they're offering startup, uh, biopharmas. I don't anticipate that we'll see a whole lot of early stage manufacturing capacity growth, which in my mind, I think would, uh, actually put more pressure on the outsourced, uh, community, which is, which is to your point already asking people to take a number and wait. So, uh, congratulations on that. It sounds like a a strategic and and well-planned move.
1: Well, fortunately we are ahead of the curve, but I would say there's a, um, there's a disconnect right now between united states policy and and what's happening on the ground i think that there were a lot of policy statements saying that the united states needed domestic manufacturing they needed domestic r and a lot of other things
2: yeah.
1: and i think that in 2020 and 2021 uh you could accomplish a lot because the biotech markets were open so i am pleased that uh together with our board and investors we were able to Develop these capabilities when it was possible to do it. I do think that once some of the politics blows over, I don't know, I'm not an expert in politics, but I do think that there's going to need to be a huge commitment of the federal government to uh, jumpstart some of this re of pharmaceutical manufacturing. You see a lot of it happening in the chip space. President Biden, the State of the Union, highlighted the things that Intel is doing. And there's um, an act that is specifically being floated around to rebuild American competitiveness in chip-related technologies. And I foresee that the same thing has got to happen in the biotech space. So I think that we're in a a very good position to benefit from that because we have the expertise of operating and even building complex manufacturing. So I think that, you know, we are very well positioned to benefit when the government gets around to doing it and they will get around to doing it. Our our government uh, doesn't always seem like it operates in a straight line, but, you know, I think over, history, you know, we've gotten, you know, most things right. So I think that this will be an important, uh, advance. And as I said, we're very well positioned to be part of that.
0: Excellent. Um, I want, I want to move on and, and start, uh, talking specifically about your, your COVID program because, uh, I'm looking at the clock here, Doctor Letterman, and I feel like uh, we should have said two hours aside because we've got a lot to cover here. And I, I I'm, I'm really appreciating uh, your responses to my questions, the, the, the depth and detail. Uh, but, but I'm only halfway through my question set, so we <laughs> need, need to need to move on. And, I, and I want to get, um, you know, some perspective on on your COVID strategy. You've got several COVID-related candidates, uh, in in the pipeline. Uh, I want to start with the vaccine, um. And, and and I want to just throw some some numbers out there and get your get your take on them so that I can better understand what that market opportunity looks like. So there's a, a count out there being uh, tallied by the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society. It is not comprehensive, but uh, it, it's a count of uh, nearly hundred clinical uh, COVID vaccine candidates globally. They're kind of keeping track of clinical stage when you know when one drops off and another adds uh, adds on. Uh, as I said, I, I think it's 90, it was 96 when I checked yesterday, uh, again, not comprehensive. There are a couple hundred more, you know, that, that we could identify through various sources in, in preclinical stages. So this COVID vaccine, uh, field is a crowded one, right? Like, and for, for understandable reasons, uh, 18 months ago, two years ago, everybody, everybody wanted to jump on because everybody wanted to capitalize on the opportunity and, and be the hero and do the right thing for humanity. Um, We've seen several approvals globally now. I don't know, 15. I mean, we're, we're familiar with the ones we are here in the States, but there, I think there are like 15 uh, approved um, COVID vaccines globally. Um, so last April, uh, Tonics and Kansas State, if I'm not mistaken, uh, announced collaboration to develop a vaccine candidate for COVID-19, prevent COVID-19, uh, utilizing a lo- novel live virus vaccine vector platform. So there's a, a number of questions in there why uh why why get into the game because like i like i said from a simplistic perspective uh, like mine it looks like a crowded field to jump into um two you know it's it's uh everybody knows that and our uh rna si rna mrna anything with rna in it is super sexy right now so so why and why uh why a, a novel live virus vaccine vector platform
1: great well thanks for that question so first of all a lot of
0: words words for that question right dr letterman but you get where i'm going
1: (laughs) i started my career in the aids era when i was a third year medical student the new england journal of medicine article came out about an on a new disease in gay men in san francisco so the first 10 years of my career were devoted to aids and i did significant work in that area And like many other people now, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who um, obviously, you know, rose to fame in in that period. Um, I I was I'm younger than Dr. Fauci, but but um, (laughs) did not did not have the same impact on HIV as he had. But but um, uh, I think that the reason we're in it is because we think we have something very unique and important to bring to the game. There are, as you mentioned, over 100, some people say 300 candidates in development. And from my perspective, there should be more.
2: Mm.
1: I mean, this is something that shut the United States down for two years. Uh, Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers called this uh, the $16 trillion pandemic. Mm. And we're not out of it yet. So I don't know how many programs there should be or how much we should be spending. But I don't think there are enough programs and I don't think we're spending enough. Certainly government is not spending enough, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, So we have a very unique take on it and that relates to live virus vaccines. Live mm-hmm. virus vaccines were the first vaccine, uh, literally Edward Jenner in 1796, so 220 years ago, did the first vaccine. He used horsepox to vaccinate people against smallpox that turned out to be the most successful vaccine ever. We have picked up on that and we've been working on vaccines since before COVID. So we had already been working on our internal horsepox program that the the smallpox vaccine form is called 801 and our COVID vaccine programs are called TNX 1800, 1840 and 1850. So basically we used a lot of new technology to recreate what we think is very close to what Edward Jenner used. So actually we used synthetic biology to create it. When we did it, it was only the fourth virus ever synthesized. I believe it's still the largest virus ever synthesized, but we did it because so much was known about this vector. It had eradicated smallpox in Europe, it has really great features in that it um, brings the antigen to the right place. It gets into the cells, the cells express it and you get strong immune responses. And by the way, smallpox was a respiratory pathogen mm. and this shot in the arm eradicated smallpox. So we think that this is a very important um, potential way. It's It's relatively inexpensive to manufacture it has much better handling characteristics so it can be used in you know, places that don't have good refrigeration, uh, poor supply chain, the rest of it. So there are many reasons to work on it. But yeah. now let me go into the reason about who needs another. The mRNA vaccines were a remarkable advance. I believe that Drew Weissman, Catalin Carrico and um, P- Peter Cullis The people that were involved in this work, in my opinion, deserve Nobel Prizes. The mRNA vaccines have given us breathing room, but they are not the end of the problem. They have two major limitations. One is the short duration of protection. Short Mm -hmm. duration means that you have to get boosted every four to six months. And as the uh, head of FDA's vaccine branch, Peter Mark said last week at the Vaccine Advisory Committee, that's not a tenable or sustainable program. The second limitation of the mRNA vaccines is that they don't block forward transmission. Forward transmission means if I am infected and vaccinated, will I transmit it to you? Unfortunately for Omicron and Delta, it appears that vaccinated people are pretty good at continuing to spread it. So in my view, in order to really get a handle on this, we need vaccines that provide durable protection and block forward transmission. So if you look at the history of vaccines, smallpox, MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, those are three live virus vaccines, um, you know the, the early chickenpox vaccines other things you know uh, save in oral polio the effective cost-effective vaccines that have blocked forward transmission historically have been live virus vaccines now this was well known to monsef Slaoui, who was the first head of operation warp speed and you know if you're handing out nobel prizes and by the way no one is asking me who should get a nobel prize but I think that Monsef Slaoui would be up there for some kind of a peace prize if you don't want to give him a Nobel Prize, but he did a wonderful job of stewarding the resources to come up quickly with a vaccine. But Monsef Slaoui also said there are four types of vaccines that should be evaluated. in RNA, subunit, replication incompetent and live virus vaccines. He got to the first three, didn't get to the live virus vaccines at that time merck who at the time was a leader in vaccine technology if you go back to 2020 merck had developed more innovative vaccines than anyone else and they had chose they chose to work on two live virus vaccine platforms as their solution to covid But it never got picked up by warp speed, and when it looked like the mRNA vaccines were doing well, Merck discontinued both programs. Mm -hmm. So we are picking up the mantle of this fourth pillar, Monsef Slawi's fourth pillar of vaccine technologies, live virus vaccine technology, and we have, as you noted, two different strategies. We have the horse box that is more homegrown, although it really came from a very productive collaboration with University of Alberta in Canada, which is a phenomenal um, vaccine and and virology institute with a Nobel laureate from Hep C. Not that we're directly collaborating with, but in that department. And um, also Kansas State, which is also a worldwide leading uh, place where we have a second candidate, just like Merck. I mean, it's obviously not Appropriate for the head of a little company to say we're just like Merck, but with respect to taking two bets on live virus vaccine candidates, different live virus vaccine candidates to bring the COVID antigen to the body. Um, that's why we're doing it. Let me just give you, let me revert to being a professor for one instant. Sure. Every vaccine has two essential elements. One is the antigen. That's the feature of COVID that it's gonna to bring to the body, that's what's recognized. The second essential thing for any vaccine is a danger signal. And the danger signal is the thing that wakes up the body's immune system so that it, so that it mounts a durable response to um, the pathogen. And while I believe, as I said, the mRNA vaccines are remarkable, They've given us breathing room. They've done a phenomenal job as a first vaccine. I think it's time where we need vaccines that provide more durable immunity and block forward transmission. And I would say that the limitations of mRNA vaccines appear to me to be that they provide an insufficient danger signal. Now in a subunit vaccine, the danger signal is provided by what's called an adjuvant. For example, the Novavax vaccine looks very interesting. They have a proprietary adjuvant. Glaxo has some very interesting adjuvants actually that are made in Hamilton, Montana, and they're part of their partnership uh, with uh, Sanofi on a COVID vaccine. But live virus vaccines have a very strong property of providing that danger signal. And that's what we think is so unique about them, that if you put a live virus vaccine into the arm, it activates many parts of the immune system that are related to danger signals, things like toll-like receptors and and, um, other, other warning systems for the body. So we think that that's the important thing to harness on next generation vaccines. Now, before I leave, let me say this point. Unfortunately, we are going to have until the end of time to come up with the best vaccines. Now, tonics doesn't have till the end of time, but I, I think it, we're a very long way away from having a vaccine that is gonna bring us, and I mean us, humanity, mm-hmm. into some kind of an equilibrium with this virus that we can truly call endemic.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: hard to call something endemic when just in this year in 2022 alone 150,000 Americans have died.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: hardly seems to me like we're on the other side of this pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When did you there there's a you know risk analysis that that goes on <sighs> I, I said that too simply, a, a risk analysis. There are a million risk analysis analyses that go on uh, when you're determining candidates to, to develop, to add your pipeline, to, to acquire, whatever that might be. Um, in this case, one of them is the competitive landscape. And, what, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about what you knew about the durability or assumed or, or so, sort of foresaw about the durability and ability to block for transmission of the current uh, mRNA mRNA vaccine candidates, um, in order to have confidence that you might be able to to do it better, because I you know I mean if uh, if I remember correctly, there was a a good long period of time when there weren't any necessarily uh, straight answers nor expectations around durability or the ability to block forward transmission among the vaccine candidate uh, vaccines that have been approved to date. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, I, I, when I think about that paradigm, like that, that situation, and I think, um, you know, you had to make a decision at, at some point, while these uh, candidates, or I'm sorry, uh, approved vaccines were already out there in the wild, um, about about uh, whether or not you could do it better. So it had to come at a point where you knew that these guys weren't weren't able to meet those objectives very well.
1: Well, thank you. First of all, I was hoping they would work. Sure, of course. So I was rooting for them to work. Um, But you know, I have been, you know, in this ecosystem for 30 years more, 40 years, if you go back to graduating college. And you know, I've seen technologies come and go. I've seen things that look early, look Mm -hmm. great early, not pan out. And this is clearly a brand new technology, the mRNA vaccines. Again, I'm not, they're remarkable. I'm, sure. you know, I, I've am yeah. i been vaccinated with Pfizer three times and I'm, you know, I'm, and, you know, I believe that, you know, if we could vaccinate more people, it would be helpful. But I do think that it was premature to make decisions based on three month data. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just not the time course for which you normally make a decision about which vaccine you're going to base the national policy on. Um, there are natural time things in the human body. The immune system has two major components the antibody part and the T cell part. And antibodies are known to wane by six months, and T cells are known to have more durable years, decades of protection. So the very strong antibody responses, the mRNA vaccines, were to some extent predictable, maybe better than expected. But on the other hand, I think that three month data, you know, in retrospect could be called a sugar high, mm. you know, that that now that you, you know, that it's clear that without further boosts, the one year activity of mRNA vaccines would not have been a basis to make a national vaccine policy on. And I think that now more and more, you're seeing uh, statements out of Sanofi and and Glaxo and, and um, J&J saying, you know, wait a second, maybe on this very early data, you know, we came up a little bit short relative to mRNA, but, you know, look down the line and, you know, they're either comparable or let's see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the things, one of the personal or human characteristics you need to be in uh, pharmaceuticals is you need to have a long, um, you know, a a long vision, and you you know you need to have, you know, uh, a, a, you know, the ability to to pursue something and and to get results over a long period of time. Yeah. So, and and that's that's one of the features I think why public companies ultimately are better suited to develop pharmaceuticals because they have a so-called permanent capital base and they can they can look further into the future whereas the venture capital model you know is really predicated on relatively quick returns which you know is based on you know exiting you know either becoming public or just selling to a um or selling to a public company one way or another but anyway so I think um you know I've seen the you know, a lot of vaccine technologies come and go. I mean, I saw DNA was going to be the answer to everything. And mRNA w- was surprising on the upside. I think, you know, it had not really worked for Zika. Um, and, you know, there were equivocal results and other things. So I think they surprised everyone. I think um, I-, I even saw a Monsef remark that he was pleasantly um, surprised that they happened to work so well against this particular virus but mm-hmm. uh, i think that that was early in the game and now that we see this this virus is enormous potential for for mutation immune evasion and and other uh, you know wily things that it does recombination um you know we, we we just have to continue to develop better and better tools if we're going to establish anything like the, you know, the world as we knew it in 2019.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, do you have time for, for two more quick questions? Sure. Good. Good with that. Okay. Um, yeah. I know we're, I know we're stretching the limits of my uh, you know, my normal uh, t- time allocation, but I uh, just two two more quick questions for you. you. You alluded to this, so you should be able to cover this pretty quick. You alluded to it uh, when you were talking about uh, the, the the decision to go with a novel live virus vac- vaccine vector uh, platform. So, if you look at uh, the the vaccine market on the whole, and you guys are working on multiple uh, vaccine candidates, it's uh, projected to be 100, $150 and fifty billion dollar uh, market by twenty twenty six. Analyst companies, when they look at that number, they say, "Okay, well, you know, what what might thwart that? What might stand in the way of of that kind of growth that we're projecting?" And the two things in the vaccine market that they point to are uh, purchasing power in developing countries um, and the huge capital investment required for developing vaccines, uh, from the outset. Um, so one, would you agree that those are, there are two, two threats to the, the, the growth and, and therefore democratization and distribution of good vaccine candidates. And two, if, you know, if you do agree, uh, what would you consider the response to those two challenges?
1: Well, you know, our, our role, again, turning to the, to the concept that we live in an ecosystem is that our our goal is to create a create and test a valuable technology and you know to the extent that we can bring it forward and validate that it has you know that that it's useful for human health um you know that that's our challenge and one of the things i like about the pharmaceutical ecosystem is that if we get it to a certain point and establish these important characteristics, in my view, we will find partners—you know—a partner that would be able to take it to this next level. I mean, look at what um, BioNTech did with Pfizer. I mean, that was a very smart uh, deal for them. They realized the um, the magnitude of the problem and you know what they could do with their technology, and they found a, a willing partner, a great partner who could put together. You know all of the resources of Pfizer, and, and you know, by the way, big pharma CEOs usually can be you know graded in a you know, they, they all do about the same, it's kind of like the tide in a harbor. But in this case, I mean, Pfizer's CEO has just set himself you know apart from all other CEOs and what he's done in the pandemic, so. Um, you know, the, and the, the, the recognition that he had to, you know, Albert Borla and what, what he did to rapidly move forward, jumped on it, move this forward. It's now the leading candidates, the biggest product ever in the history of the world. And it all is, you know, Pfizer's management and, and what Pfizer is able to do. So a huge um, accomplishment. But, you know, again, J&J, huge accomplishment. I mean, they had bought some very interesting technology years ago. Um, and and you know develop that to a point where they were ready for it, and they've made a huge commitment um, around the world. It maybe doesn't get as much play in the United States, but for a lot of the uh, characteristics for which J and J was developing it, and they had a really visionary um, uh, leader, Paul Stoffels, who's always had a, com- a commitment to the whole world, the developing world, everything. And um, you know that's also a remarkable story pharmaceuticals. So I think that, you know, we see our role as bringing forward this technology, uh, bringing it up to a level showing that it would have these advantages. And as we talked about in the, you know, deciding based on the results of data, you know, which of our live virus vaccines is, is a better platform, whether they will have these properties and the rest of it. And if they have the properties that we hope we'll have, I, I am confident that we would find you know, a partner that would recognize how important this is to the world.
0: Yeah, excellent. Good, good, good response. Um, so final question is just uh, a quick snapshot of, as, as I mentioned from the outset, uh, your vaccine candidate is one uh, part of a, a suite, uh, if you will, of uh, COVID and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, programs at, at Tonics. So just a quick snapshot of how these things work together or, and, and why, what the strategy is from the CEO's perspective. So Tonics is working on this small molecule candidate for long COVID, a COVID antiviral, uh, a SARS-CoV-2 T-cell immunity diagnostic candidate, that is, as well as this vaccine. Is there a collective strategy among these four related um, related by uh, disease uh, candidates?
1: sure and i think it really relates to expertise i think a lot of um people outside the field think scientists are big thinkers and they just imagine great solutions and things come to them but from my experience being a practicing scientist for you know 40 years whatever it is now um i think it all starts with the details and you know when you climb into it and you know we have so many different um uh specific expertise and, 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 and reagent advantages and, you know, techniques and equipment and the rest of it that, you know, the reason we have so much going on in COVID is because we know so much about it um, at tonics. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're not just, you know, a casual player in this, as I said, mm-hmm. we have a forty eight thousand square foot facility in, um Frederick Maryland, and we're building another one. And we, we just have phenomenal talent in our scientific group so i think that there's an efficiency to in terms of the reagents in terms of the assays the animal models the clinical development there's so many ways in which these things may look different but they actually um uh you know cross fertilize or or actually you know related to each other so so i think that um you know we're much more of a um I guess you would call it, um, you know, the these programs in COVID have built been built from the bottom up, I guess you would say it. You would call it in terms of the expertise and the human capital, reagents, equipment, facilities, the rest of it that we've developed. And now, you know, there's increased interest in many government agents about pandemic preparedness generally. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we are still very focused on COVID you know, let's, you know, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, I read this morning, just put a reinstated the mask mandate. Um, you know, this new BA, uh, BA2 variant of Omicron is spreading very rapidly in the United States. You may have seen that Speaker Pelosi, Senator Collins, um, uh, Defense Secretary uh, Austin, um, as White House spokesman uh, uh, Pisaki. I mean, this is, you know, we're we not out of this yet. So we're very focused on COVID. But in addition to that, the systems and the expertise we're developing are applicable to many other um, potential pandemics. But we think that with all of the systems we've got with COVID, um, we can use that as a model system to the extent that people want to think about uh, technologies for future pandemics.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is very important. Uh, We we hosted a a panel, a bioprocess online live panel event not too long ago on pandemic preparedness with a a couple of great biotech CEOs um, who are keenly aware of that challenge as well. What uh, you know, what what advice would you give uh, to to others who are in uh, in a position like you were? I don't know, back in 2014 when you were when you were launching tonics uh you know co-founder getting started um looking back on that span of time that's happened since then um i don't know it's a it's a great big giant question but what would be like a a good solid sage piece of advice you would give someone in your shoes back then
1: well first of all i think that to be value added in biotech it's very important to have technical training knowledge and a lot of experience under your belt so my experience in academia though they may seem different as we said academia is kind of a different pole of this ecosystem but all of my success i attribute to my training and experiences in academia to start with so i don't know when the right point is for different people to make um to make the move but you know Biotech is, I think it's fair to say, more dynamic, um, applies to a wider range of, you know, lets you potentially affect a larger number of people by this, you know, direct involvement with developing drugs and therapeutics. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So um, I um, I think that for young people making the move or Middle-aged people, whoever's making the move, you know, I think everyone's story is different. Everyone's expertise is different, and the opportunities they're presented with are, are different. Um, the uh, biotech market is a little bit uh, challenging right now. Uh, there are a number of companies um, uh, doing, uh, you know, layoffs, downsizing, things like that. So it may not be as easy to move into it right now. But you know, everything is cyclical. So I would just say. Um, you know, uh, wait, wait for the wait for the next cycle. But you know, the other thing is some some people have commented that some of the greatest companies have been built in bad markets. So mm-hmm. I think that there's probably a lot going on that's going to be. You know, we'll look back in ten years and say, you know, these were companies that people weren't focused on in 2022, but look at them now.
0: Dr. Letterman, thank you for uh, being so generous with your time and uh, and so generous with your insight, sharing so much with us. I appreciate it. It's been a, a privilege to, to spend this time with you, and I think it's uh, some very valuable content you shared with us. Thank
1: you, Matthew, and thank you for having me on.
0: My pleasure. So that's Tonics Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Seth Letterman, I'm Matt Piller, and this is The Business of Biotech. If you enjoyed today's show, drop us a review and make sure to uh, uh, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, and we're grateful for our partnership with Cytiva. Bookmark bioprocessonline.com and citiva.com backslash emerging biotech for continually updated insight created by the leaders of emerging bio for the leaders of emerging bio. Check those out. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And as always, thanks for listening.